Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we got some rain. If you're happy about that, give praise and thanks to God. If you're not so happy about it, well, I got my car washed on Friday. In reading through our Sunday lessons bit by bit, week by week, rather than reading through the Gospels from start to finish, one of the things we miss is the flow of the narratives. The Gospels were never really written to be received in isolated sections, but rather as a whole. When you read them with continuity, they present details and messages and truths that can be missed when we consume them piecemeal. Our Gospel lesson for today, for example, comes immediately on the heels of last week's Gospel reading. And unless you read these two parables together or you show up both Sundays and pay close attention, you might miss something. In both of these readings, Jesus tells parables about a man and his son. Last Sunday, you heard about the vineyard owner who sent his son to receive fruit from his tenants. Today, we hear about a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. In both of these instances, Jesus is presenting God the Father as the Father in the parables. In the first, the king is that vineyard owner, or the father, rather, is that vineyard owner. In the second, he is a king. The main theme, though, is the same. God, the Father, has a son. But what happens to this son in the parables? Last week, the father had sent that son to the tenants to collect the payment that was due to him. And the tenants killed the son, somehow thinking that by doing that, they would receive the inheritance. This week, the father throws a wedding banquet in honor of his son, and of course, it would have to be also in honor of his bride. And many people refuse to come. And of those who do, at least one attendee is not properly prepared and attired. What then is Jesus saying to us in the flow of Matthew's narrative here, from the telling of the one parable to the next? Now, although it is cloaked a little bit in the shroud of being a parable, we have the benefit of historical perspective. We know what Jesus' listeners at the time did not. We understand that Jesus is foretelling his own death and resurrection. In the parable last week, Jesus has been sent by the Father to evil, rebellious humanity, that is, to you and to me. And what happens? Jesus is put to death. But what happens after Jesus' death? He is resurrected, of course, and he is to be honored at the head of the table of a festive banquet. This banquet has several dimensions to it. Jesus is resurrected, in one case, to preside over a wedding banquet here at St. Paul every week. Here he meets his beloved bride, the church. We know this feast by the name the Lord's Supper. Jesus is also resurrected to preside over an eternal heavenly banquet. And both of these are the wedding feast of God, the Father's Son. 
In reading these two parables then, the one from Matthew 21 last week and from Matthew 22 today, we hear Jesus proclaiming to us what is very good news. Even though He would be beaten and cast out of the vineyard and killed, He would still bring life out of death, being resurrected to both serve and to be honored at a great heavenly feast, celebrated as the bridegroom with His bride, the church. For His Son, God the Father throws a wonderful wedding feast. And although that wedding feast is always to be remembered and commemorated as His Son's death, it also celebrates His life. A life which has no end. A life that He will share for all of those who trust in His death and resurrection. That it will bring them to, through death, and once again into life. The parable that we hear today challenges us to consider what this banquet means to us. It poses the very difficult questions of who is invited and who isn't, of who will come and who won't. Finally, this parable teaches us that though the invitation is freely offered to all, there are certain requirements and expectations of those who attend as has been the case in the several parables we've heard from Matthew lately, it is traditionally understood that the first group invited to this banquet were the Jewish leadership. Now, it was common among ancient weddings in Southwest Asia for the host to send his servants out to the invited guests twice. The first visit was used to announce the time and date of the event. And then, on the actual day of the wedding, the host would send out his servants again, this time to remind the guests and to encourage them to come, that all was now ready. Jesus tells us that many were invited to this wedding. But when the servants were sent out the second time to call those guests to come, there were all sorts of reasons, all sorts of excuses why they couldn't or wouldn't. And the king says, you can almost hear him pleading to share his generosity Tell those who have, who have been invited, look, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But Jesus says, they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Justifiably enraged, the king sends out his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. And then he said to his slaves this, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And those slaves did so. They went out to the main streets and they gathered together all that they could find, both good and bad. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But Jesus makes a point here to communicate to us that once we are invited, there is something and such a thing as appropriate attire, a garment that is required in order to be acceptable at this celebration. To be invited by the king is one thing, and that makes one acceptable to come to the banquet. However, one is still to put on clothes that are fitting for a royal celebration. What is this garment, then? What is the wedding robe? 
It's not a literal piece of clothing or some sort of wardrobe, a demand that we must dress in a certain particular way in order to come to church or to receive the sacrament. Yet we certainly ought not treat God and His gifts with less respect than we would show in our workplaces or in our schools, should we? But there's still no requirement to specifically have a worldly sort of attire. St. Gregory the Great, commenting on this passage of text, asks this question. What do we think is meant by the wedding garment? For if we say it is baptism or faith, is there anyone who has entered this marriage feast without them? What then must we understand by the wedding garment but love? And surely St. Gregory is right. For as St. Paul writes in Colossians 3.14, above all, clothe yourselves with love. Just as those who were first invited to come to the wedding feast and would not come were not worthy because they rejected God and His Son, so also those who are not worthy to accept the invitation who do not come with love in their hearts. Love for God, love for His Son, and love for the other guests at the banquet. Now, St. Gregory is giving here an allegorical interpretation of the parable, and that was customary in his time. But still, this interpretation fits. If faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love, then certainly our finest, our most fitting garment to wear to the feast of God's love is love ourselves. It is one thing to be invited by God's grace alone to the wedding banquet of His Son. It is quite another to presume to come to the feast without love, without clothing oneself in the garment of the kingdom, without love of God and love of neighbor. Which brings me to our congregational situation today. As you well know, we often struggle here with financial pressures and meeting our obligations. But in our most recent fiscal year, in spite of the challenges of a sputtering economy, many of you responded with love and generosity to our encouragement to consider just how you stood in having your priorities in order, both spiritually and in the worldly sense. Unlike those wicked tenants in last Sunday's Gospel lesson, you did not deny the vineyard owner what was rightfully his. You discovered the great joy and comfort in setting aside a first fruits portion of God's great blessings to you, of taking a firm stand and commitment, of pledging to avoid the weekly battle with Satan and with your own weak flesh to hold back and to hoard what He has given you. What a great joy it was then to finish the last fiscal year without that usual struggle, without having to make a last minute appeal for people to dig deeper so we could meet the budget. Our Lord truly does change hearts when we surrender our will to His. And now we see on the horizon a new potential challenge to our financial health, the departure next June of our own tenants, Concordia High School. We will need to address this challenge in the coming weeks and months, always remembering that God has promised not to forsake His children, not to turn His back on those who are faithful to Him and remain committed to Him. Now, it might seem like a bit of a stretch today to speak about our potential financial challenges in relation to our gospel parable. Yet, when you get right down to it, within the church, 
It's all about the king's son, isn't it? The banquet here in time and the banquet in heaven for eternity. Everything we do finds its center in that banquet for God's son. Who is in? Who is out? Who should be invited and welcomed to the king's table? To the king's son's banquet. Now granted, in many churches today, and even in many Lutheran churches today, this wedding banquet, this heavenly feast, this Lord's Supper, has little or no place in the ministry and mission of those congregations. Many would even suggest that this feast of the Lamb who was slain is irrelevant to people today. That certain people receiving the feast without proper preparation is nothing more than an obstacle to outreach. It's not helpful for inviting others to the church. But what do we hear today? What do we read about this banquet parable that Jesus tells? We hear that it is God's banquet, that it is given in honor of His Son. We hear that God the Father does indeed want all to be invited, all whom the servants could find, both good and bad. We hear that God the Father wants the wedding hall to be filled with guests, and that the guests should be gathered around the banquet table. Now, we cannot dictate and we cannot prescribe what other congregations and other faith communities do. But for us Lutherans, for those of us who are sacramental Christians, how can we not hear in this parable a wonderful invitation for us to invite others to come, to hear the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected for them and for their salvation? and to invite them to come here so that they too can be properly informed and sufficiently prepared to share in the banquet of the Lord's Supper. Is this not a gospel mandate? One to invite others to come, to learn, and to share in that supper? In the same way, are not our stewardship efforts, our giving of the worldly financial resources with which God has blessed us, aimed not merely or even primarily at meeting an annual church budget, not on anything else but reaching out to others with the good news of Jesus Christ through our church and through our school to share with them His saving death and resurrection. If you stop and think about it, that's really our sole and only purpose for existing as a congregation. It's the only reason we have this wonderful building and all the other blessings around us to serve as a mission center for outreach. We are here to connect with those whom the church often finds to be unaware, to be confused, to be resistant, to be disconnected, and to be absent from the community and the body of Christ. That is why stewardship and financial obligations are so important. It's not just to raise funds to serve our own ongoing spiritual care needs, but also to be able to serve the needs of those who are not yet invited or not yet accepted into the kingdom. It's so that we can continue to equip and to prepare and to encourage each of you in reaching out into the community, in your schools and in your jobs, in your clubs and in your neighborhoods, to invite all of those who you can find. Our task and our goal are clear. To invite and welcome both the good and the bad, the younger and the older, those who are single and those who are married, with children, without children, rich and poor alike, to invite all of them to come to the wedding feast celebrated each week here at St. Paul and celebrated eternally in heaven. And 
since we are among those already invited and welcome to this banquet, let us be always putting on our wedding clothes, whether it's at church on Sunday morning or at your desk on Tuesday afternoon, if you're behind the wheel or behind a stranger in the checkout counter, in a crowd of thousands or in the quiet of your very own home, at work or at play, let us always have our wedding clothes on, that is, love. The love of God for us in Jesus Christ and the love we are to have for one another. Love for the neighbor, love for the stranger, love for those who are not yet believers, love for those in wheelchairs and with walkers, love for babies and toddlers, children and youths, teens, young and old people alike. Gregory the Great concluded his analysis and commentary on this parable by saying the following, Only God's love brought it about that His only begotten Son united the hearts of His chosen to Himself. John says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for us. To enter the banquet hall, to sit at the table of the Lord, we are to put on our wedding garments, the love that God Himself has given us in Jesus Christ, His Son. So clothe yourself in love and come. Come to the wedding banquet. Come because all is now ready. Everything is prepared. In the name of the honored Bridegroom, Jesus Christ, Amen. Amen.